if you have ever looked at something and failed to see something which later became very obvious. I don't know if you've seen this before. Uh, this is the genius of advertising. This is a FedEx van, you know, the delivery company from the United States. I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but has anyone noticed the arrow between the E and the X? You see that? It's clever, isn't it? What about the next one? This is the one that's baffled me. Every Christmas time for many, many years, Toblerone, the chocolate of Christmas. Has anyone ever seen the bear? Yeah? Is this new to anyone? There's a bear on the mountain. You're all looking a little bit confused. So let me put you out your misery. I know this is the same illustration that I started last week's sermon with, okay? You do not have deja vu, and I am not yet losing my mind, okay? I have deliberately started with this and quite enjoyed the whole thing. Uh, to, to explain to you, to drive home the very same point tonight that we saw in Genesis chapter 37 with Joseph and now with Judah. Last week we saw how easy it can be in Joseph's life to miss the choreography of God working through this horrendous, hate-filled trafficking of this brother Joseph into Egypt. But this week, in chapter 38, it's easy to miss the intricate choreography of God's through Tamar's trickery in an attempt, on the face of it, just to engineer a future for herself. On the face of it, that's what you've got, Tamar's trickery. She's engineering a future for herself. But take another look. And what do we see? God uses Tamar's trickery, amazingly, to engineer a future for you, for all nations, actually. And once you see it, you can't not see it. It's glorious. Now, let me show you from Genesis 38 how God is once again hidden in plain sight. And I've got two main points tonight. Number one is, on the face of it, what do we see plainly before us? We see the disgraced Tamar engineering a future for herself. Now, verses 1 to 11 explain how she came to be disgraced. It's Judah's fault, really. He does two things that impact her life severely. Verses 1 to 5 tells us the first thing. He starts a family of his own. Now, that might sound a little bit fine. There's nothing wrong with that, it seems. But until you take a closer look, you see how bad it is. Because you see that verses 1 and 2 tell us that Judah is in a place that he shouldn't live and having kids with a woman he shouldn't marry. Okay, The daughter of the Canaanite man, Shua, is not a covenant member of God's people. Genesis 24, verse 3 and chapter 28, verse 1, show that the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were expressly and repeatedly told, marry someone from within the covenant family of God. Don't marry someone who belongs to Canaan. They worship many idols. We worship the one true God. We're different. So Judah, in verses 1 and 2, is sinning. And guess what? Sin always has consequences. There's always a knock-on effect. Never think it's just something that you're enjoying on your own or doesn't have an impact on other people. 
it does, even the ones we think are most intimate. There's always collateral damage. So the first thing Judah does is start a family of his own. The second thing that he does is that he denies Tamar a family of her own. She, like every bride, no doubt had high hopes for her future as she looked into Judah's son Er's eyes on their wedding day. But she must have been amazingly disappointed because verse 7 says, God took her husband's life because he was wicked. Now, we know that in the past, as we've seen in Genesis, that there there have been some people who have been pretty horrendous in their sin for God to have taken their lives. And this is exactly what's happened here. This is the picture of a man who is no good. Her second husband was just as bad though. Onan was Judah's second son. Now it's weird to us, really, but it was customary back then that if uh, a dead, for a dead man's brother to provide the widow with children, uh, kids who would effectively carry on the husband's name and guarantee some kind of provision for the widow. The thing is, Onan knows that for as long as Tamar is childless, he's on to something. If she stays childless, he gets the big brother's inheritance, hence the convenient withdrawal. He gets to have sex, and he gets to get rich all the time. Win, win for Onan. But no, verse 10, talk about a backfire. The Lord puts him to death also, okay? To the God who loves the orphan and the widow, to the God who expressly states all the way through that he stands up for the helpless, the helpless, Onan is an absolute stench. And the taking of life, as we've seen in Genesis already, as well as the giving of life, is God's prerogative. He gives, he takes away, whether among those who call him Lord or not. Now, with all this death, Judah looks at his third son, Shelah, and looks at Tamar, and who knows, maybe he starts to wonder if if she's some kind of axe murderer or something, you know, cursed in some particular way. Everybody who marries this girl ends up dead. This is not a good thing. So he doesn't want to lose his third and last son. So he technically delays her marriage to him, but in reality, he is sidelining her and consigning her, therefore, to a lifetime of disgrace. To be childless, to be husbandless, is to be futureless. Dependent, as we see as he takes her into his own house, dependent on a father-in-law who did not even want her. Now, I know this isn't a sermon on marriage or on biblical masculinity, but may I take an opportunity here to address the men. Women have throughout history been beaten down, turned aside, and rejected. Tamar ends up in the state she's in because of the failures of men in her life. They do not love her, they do not lead her, they do not protect her, they do not provide for her as they ought to, therefore they are effectively a disgrace, much like men who behave the same way are today. Our news is littered with stories of manipulative, uh, oppressive, coercive men. It may seem like there's more in the news now than there has been in the past, but the prevalence of the behavior has not changed a bit, I'm sure. The prevalence of porn, of course, is the biggest indictment on the uncaring, self-gratifying behavior of selfish men. So Christian men, do not be like them. Don't be like them. 
we are to be noticeably and remarkably different. Models of godliness in our relationships with women. We're to treat the women in the church as sisters in Christ with absolute purity, 1 Timothy 5, 2 says. We are in marriage to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, as Ephesians 5, 25 says, with Christ-like sacrifice. May God help us to do that better. If verses 1 to 11 show how Tamar came to be disgraced, verses 12 to 26 then show how Tamar very cleverly engineered for herself a future. She's trying to provide her own wealth for her own welfare, you see. So what did she do first? She deceived, basically deceived Judah into having sex with her. The opportunity came after Judah's wife died uh, when he went out to work his flocks. She disguised herself as a cult prostitute, was kind of like a pagan priestess, if you like, who'd sell their services because they believed in those cultures that doing so improved the fertility of their fields and their flocks. And what do you know? Judah is acting just like the idolaters that he has come to live among. He is in the world and he is of the world all at the same time. Now, the apostle was right when he said in 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be misled, bad company corrupts good character. In other words, pointing out for us that it's necessary for us to be in the world, but not of the world. But Tamar is clever, it's a risky endeavor. If this goes wrong, it is the ash heap for her. But Judah offers the usual price, a goat, but didn't have one on a leash conveniently. It's hard to fit a goat in your pocket, isn't it? Anyway, so she asked for his pledge. It's like a non-refundable deposit, really, if he uh, fails to pay. And he hands over the equivalent of his passport and his credit card, okay? Um, papers of identity, if you like, and a guarantee of money. Verse 18, so he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. Three months later, when she began to show the whispers started, the rumors spread, disgraced Tamar has brought disgrace on Judah. What does Judah say? She must die. I'm sure that's how he said it, but what an absolute hypocrite. What a hypocrite. Who's the one that's been flaunting himself among the, Id the idolaters of the day and sleeping with the cult priestess so it's okay for him to crack on and live however he wants to live? You see what I mean about her being sidelined? He's taken any opportunity he can to get rid of this cursed woman. But what a scene, verse 25, as she's being brought out. Now, and that means to her execution. She is a dead woman walking here. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law I am pregnant by the man who owns these. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff they are. Judah. It's genius, isn't it? It's brilliant. I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have seen his face in that moment? Bring it out to die. This is terrible. What? What's this? Oh. Oh. These are mine. <laughs> That's crazy. Imagine the wide-eyed, vacant expression of a man with all the conviction of his own 
utter stupidity dawning on him. What a scene. So she engineers a future for herself by, first of all, deceiving Judah into having sex with her, and then exposing Judah as the father of her child and effectively saving her own life. Listen to Judah's reaction in verse 26. Look at it with me. Judah said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. Now, He's not saying at this point that she's godly. Uh, she's not in the right for what he did. That's not what the passage means. What he's saying is that she is simply more in the right than he is in his view. He thought that she deserved to be burned at the stake, but now he's effectively saying, I deserve it more. In other words, what's he doing here? He's humbly holding his hands up. He's admitting his guilt and being honest about that, and he, as a result, would then become the public disgrace, not Tamar. Now, when faced with that kind of conviction, it's easy to try and conceal it, downplay it, minimize it, blame shift it to someone else. But he doesn't. And this is what's at the heart of godly sorrow, the kind that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. A godly sorrow, a serious, mean, like deeply felt and deeply meant conviction that leads someone to say sorry and mean it. This is what's happening to Judah. He chooses not to hide from his conviction, his guilt, his shame, or the disgrace that he would receive from admitting it. He chose to accept it. Now, you might ask the question, hang on a minute. I remember this guy from Genesis 37. What happened to cold-hearted Judah? Here's the guy who was sociopathic enough to traffic his own brother into slavery and try and make a quick buck out of it and then lie to his dad about the thing that would bring him, bring his dad that deepest of heartache that would last his entire life. He refused to be comforted in his mourning, it says about Jacob. What's a disgraced woman to him? Why not just say, she's lying, kill her? Why not cover it up? Why not even just buy himself some time? I think the answer is because God is changing him. I think he's different because God brought him to this place to bring him face to face with his own guilt and start to work on his heart because of what he has planned for him ahead. It's striking, really, when you look at the big picture of chapters 37 to 50, this account of the family of Jacob, which deals mostly with Joseph, but Judah has a lot to do in it. Now, the Judah we meet later, for example, in chapter 45, is very different to the Judah that we meet we met last week in chapter 37. What's happened to him? He's, he's like willingly laying down his life for one of his brothers. Hang on a minute. In chapter 37, he was willingly selling one of his brothers into his own, into death for a quick buck. What's happened to him? This has happened to him. Chapter 38 has happened to him. Tamar. Tamar. Bizarrely has happened to him. It's remarkable. 
And Tamar then lived to bear Judah two, well, very strong-willed sons, it seems. Verses 27 to 30. I don't know if you recall, sounds a lot like Jacob and Esau. Do you remember the story of them being born? Scarlet thread involved there. Someone sticking their hand out, pulling it back in. The other one being born next, first. It's bizarre, but that happens again. Kids are always struggling to be first, though, aren't they? You know, struggling to be in the front seat. Oh, first to choose the lolly. Oh, goodness. Here, though, Perez and Zerah struggle to be the firstborn. What a weird way to end the account. Is that it? Well, on the face of it, it looks weird. But take a closer look. And guess what? You start to see the sovereign hand of God in it all. You see, Tamar here had engineered a future for herself. But in her wildest dreams would never have guessed that the God she probably didn't even believe in was working to engineer a future not for her, but for everyone, for you and me. And this is point two where we see God hidden in plain sight because God works her unwitting trickery to engineer a future for all nations. Little did she know that Judah, Judah didn't know this just now either, that Judah was God's chosen ruler for his people. We have followed this promise that God has given to Abraham through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As we read 37 to 50, the question we ought to be asking is, who's next? Who is the promised one who's going to receive the promise next of people, offspring, a place, the promised land, and through that, a ruler, a scepter, a king, a forever king is coming. We're waiting for all of that. You open up to chapter 37 and you read the onwards until you get to 48 and you're like, it's got to be Joseph. But it's not Joseph. It's Judah. Joseph has been positioned by God to to be his people's savior. But he's the savior of the promise. He's the savior of Judah. Who is the blessed one, the one blessed by Jacob at the end? In Genesis 49, 8 to 10, Jacob says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons, in other words, your brothers, will bow down to you, just like in his dreams. You're a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son, like a lion he crouches and lies down, like a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. I feel like singing a Christmas song now. You see, he's the one, Judah's the one through whom the promise made to Adam and Eve of the curse-reversing Savior will come. And he's the one through whom the promise made to Abraham of a people and a race and a blessing to all nations would come. Now revisit the scene earlier in our passage when Judah's sons, two of his three sons are dead and one is not yet of age. And then his wife was dead. 
Judah's place as the progenitor of the promise, we see, was in serious jeopardy. And guess what? He did nothing about it. And guess what? Nothing happened. He remained in jeopardy until lo and behold, Judah spots a prostitute that he fancies. A Tamar whose mask not only hides her identity, but conceals her disgrace. Little though, little did she know that she, through her sinful actions, was entering into the bloodline of kings, even the king of kings, Jesus Christ himself. And she herself, bizarrely, is remembered. A pagan woman remembered throughout all of biblical history. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. It's worth seeing. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. These are the bits we like to skip in our Bible readings, but we're going to read it carefully now. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose, there's a woman, mother, whose mother was Tamar. She's included in the family tree. Would you include her if you found out that she was your great granny and you were doing your family tree? Would you conveniently forget? God doesn't. Jesus doesn't. She's not the kind of ancestor we'd really like to mention in our family tree, but he is fine with it. What a glorious picture for us of amazing grace. Tamar, godless, pagan idolater, unwitting in her sinful actions, but used by God to continue the line. It is a glorious picture of amazing grace. Did you notice that as we read, we've read all these, about all these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. Where's Sarah? Where's Rebecca and Rachel? They're not there, but Tamar is, and even other women of disgrace and disrepute in relation to sex in some way are included as we go through this genealogy. It's incredible. It's a glorious picture of God's amazing grace. And I believe that 
this passage is here to show us what's happening with Judas to see how when we take this big picture of what's going on through the context of the whole Bible that God is demonstrating through Tamar that he loves to save sinners and that all may come and be saved by this king of kings, Jesus Christ, who came through this line. We are all Tamars after all, disgraced in many respects, every respect really. We've all got skeletons in the closet. We're all ashamed of things that we have done. We're all men and women of disrepute in some way. But guess what? You do not need to stay that way. And this passage yells that at you. Through faith in Jesus Christ, the gracious one who gives us what we don't deserve, you can change. Tamar is just one more word from God that says, see, I love to save sinners. And it's glorious. And what a foretaste of the salvation that millions from other nations, apart from Abraham's descendants, would enter into, not by marrying into his line, purposefully or through trickery, but through faith in Jesus Christ, the one that this promise is really all about. She's remembered. Her sons are remembered, even in the same genealogy in Matthew chapter one, Perez, 10 generations before his great, 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 great grandson, David, King David, who would not only reign on the throne himself, but receive a promise, a clear promise to Samuel seven of the forever king to come, the one called Messiah, whose reign would never, ever, ever, ever end. And all the way down to verse 16 of Matthew chapter one, and there he is, Jesus, the hope of the nations. And that's how on the face of it, we have, yes, Tamar plainly engineering a future for herself, trying to provide for her own welfare, but God working through her unwitting trickery to engineer a future for all nations, indeed for us. You see it? Once you see it, you can't not see it. It's glorious. If that doesn't stir in us a sense of amazement like we were singing at the start or a sense of wonder that even all of life, even a non-believer's sinful actions are the medium of God's activity, I don't know, what will amaze you? I'm done. <laughs> this is glorious. The mind that it takes the mind that it takes to plan or design something like this is, is beyond the sum of every human brain cell that has ever been in, in existence, putting themselves together to form the biggest brain that's ever been in, in existence and figuring a plan like this out. It just doesn't happen. His mind is just mind-blowingly immense. And then the power, actually having the ability that it takes to choreograph the multi-layered will of all these different threads, goodness me. Without any thwarting threat, without even a hole in the fabric or a break in the thread, it's absolutely worthy of our wonder. And yet the love, the love that motivates a person, a person 
to go to this effort, a person so unspeakably holy, righteous, to go to this kind of effort to the extent that you are then willing to physically put yourself in the story for the sake of the filthy and ungrateful people who are there, disgraceful people of this world, whoever does that and does that not to go and give them a good old dressing down, but one who will go in to save them and lay his life down for them, he and that love is worthy of unreserved love in response. Do you agree? He's glorious. He is wonderful. And Genesis 38 proves it beyond doubt. Let's bow our heads. Take a moment.